You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Kelly Rimmer on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called The Warsaw Orphan. And I'm going to tell you what, this this is such a captivating uh, novel. This it, it will grab you by the heartstrings and not let go. Uh, until the very end i love this book so much we're telling everyone about it and it is available everywhere now so go grab your copy today as soon as you finish uh listening to kelly and i chat all about it welcome to the show kelly hi hank it's such a pleasure to be here i'm excited to have you uh kelly we begin each show with the same question and that question is what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller Oh, that's a great question. I have a very, very distinct memory of reading Heidi. I was living in Sydney, uh, in Western Sydney, in a place called Blacktown with my family. And I remember holding that book, laying on my bunk bed, holding that book and being amazed that when I read, I was in the Swiss Alps. And when I put the book down, I was back in, in Sydney, in Blacktown. And just kind of putting the book up and down and being, what magic is this that can transport <laughs> me? This, whatever this is, this is what I want to do. And it never really varied my whole life. I just, that was, that was really my, my passion has always been books and writing. I love it. So from that early experience with Heidi, um, where, where did you go from there? How did your reading tastes uh, evolve and grow? And, uh, you know, what, what did you get into next? Oh, I loved Roald Dahl probably around the same time. And I read every Roald Dahl book I could find multiple times. And my daughter, who is nine, is actually doing exactly the same thing as we speak. Uh, and then from there, I slipped into, I loved, loved, loved girl detective stories. So I was all about Trixie Belden and Nancy Drew for a long time. <laughs> and some Judy Bloom. I loved, I actually read lots of the Judy Bloom books probably earlier than I should have. I had many, many questions for my parents as I, <laughs> as I went along. Um, and then when I was a teenager, I really, I had a teacher who was quite fixated on dystopian novels. And so we read, I had her two years in a row and we read, you know, all of those, we read a, a whole bunch of those kind of, you know, post-apocalypse kind of stories. Um, and from that, I kind of, I became a little bit fixated on that genre for a while. Um, and then from there, I just, I, you know, I read, I read and read, you know, I started to broaden out a little bit after that. Um, I had an elderly friend that I, it, my neighbor's grandmother, she would have been in her eighties and she was, you know, basically a shut in and she loved romance novels. And so from there, I read a whole bunch of romance novels because I would go visit her and keep her company. And that would be, she just had piles and piles of these tattered paperbacks all around her house. Um, and the whole time I was writing. So I just, I, my stories just got longer as I got older. It just was, my, my main hobby was either reading or writing. 
So, Kelly, from an early age, you knew that you wanted to be a storyteller. This was something that you were going to do. Um, you know, but as we we age and we we come into adulthood, um, you know, having a family comes, you know, come comes our way. Um, this little thing called paying bills uh, usually, <laughs> you know, comes knocking. And and a lot of times the the dream that we have early on uh, gets shelved for a while while we, you know, get get our footing in life and, and all of that good stuff. Um, what was it that brought you back around to writing and and had you try your hand at it. Uh, and, and if I'm not mistaken, I, I read on your website that, that it was, uh, you were in your thirties when you mm. decided to, to try again. What, what was it, uh, that, that got you to do that? I actually was writing the whole time. I never really stopped, but it of was course my, you were. it was, yeah, it was my secret hobby. In fact, um, I had a flatmate for a long time and even I'd, I'd write often, you know, I had jobs and I'd be busy during the day and I'd write at night, quite late at night sometimes. And I I went to great lengths to keep a, the secret that I was writing. I was, I was actually embarrassed about it. I remember thinking, oh, imagine if people knew that I thought I had something to say. Isn't that just crazy? But for such a long time, that's, that was how I thought about it. And I was also quite terrified of, of criticism and negative feedback I thought this is my deepest most most passionate love is storytelling and I wasn't sure how I would handle it if people were you know people didn't like what I was writing so I I wanted to be published but I was I knew it would be difficult I mean you know you hear all the stories about 36 rejections on this book and someone wallpapering their wall their study wall with their rejections um, and I did not want to do anything that would challenge my love for storytelling. So for all of that time, I was just writing and I wrote. I, I think I probably wrote well over a million words before, you know, in terms of full-length novels that I would write, edit, discard. I was in my 20s, so I moved around heaps. I'd leave them on a laptop and move out and or I'd get to the end of the process and then delete the story because I didn't really have a plan for putting them out there in the world. But oh, in the wow. back of my mind, if, yeah, I know. I said that to my husband the other day. I wonder if any of those were any good. <laughs> it's too late now. They're all gone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did. I had this thought that 35 seemed like a grown-up age. And I had this idea that if I was ever going to try and be published, I would have done it by 35. And then I had, you know, I had kids in my early 30s and I was working and kids and oh, I was all busy. Um, but I woke up and it was my 33rd birthday and I thought I've never even tried. I've never even shown anyone. And if I really am serious about 35, I need to get a wriggle on because time is disappearing. Um, and so that, that was the impetus for me too. I briefly self-published a novel and let some of my friends read it and they were all so supportive and lovely that that really gave me the confidence I needed to look for a publisher. And I submitted to a digital publisher in the UK called Bookature, and they were very small at the time. There was one publisher and a part-time publicist. Now they're massive and Hachette has bought them out. <laughs> um, but I submitted to them and they took the, my first submission was successful. So wow. it was quite a wild journey. So, you know, um, Several years ago, Malcolm Gladwell uh, published this this book, uh, and he popularized the 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 ten thousand hours of uh, mm. uh, of practicing your craft until you become an expert at it. Um, and and you 
it, it sounds like you absolutely did that. You you put in your yes. time and then some. Um, did you ever have the presence of mind while you were doing that to to tell yourself, you know, this is my apprenticeship. This is me uh, honing my craft, sharpening the tools that that are going to go in my writer toolbox. And and one day, I'm I'm going to be fully prepared, you know, because of this time that I'm putting in now. Or or was it just your hobby, just the the thing that you did to to unwind and to to you know let your mind relax and and or, or whatever it was you know to you at the time. But did you ever see yourself as putting in the work that would be necessary to be to to realize your dream? That is a fantastic question, but I didn't. I really didn't. I just I just love to tell stories, and I dreamed that people would read them. But I but it, that seemed like such a fanciful thing I really didn't I wanted to be published but I didn't expect that I would be published I was hopeful but I but I wasn't confident about it and so um and I I often say I think to be successful in the in publishing you need to be the kind of person who wants to write so much that even if it's a no one day even if you know the the highs and lows end up with a there's no path forward in the industry. Are you still going to be telling stories? Because if that's kind of, if that's the the passion you have, then I think those people somewhat ironically tend to do really well because if storytelling is just what you do, if it's how you, you're right, if it is an escape and if it is, if it is a relaxation and if it's fun, then, then that those people, you know, you can feel the passion in the way that they write and sure. that resonates with people. So um, I think I would still be writing even if I didn't have, you know, if, even if it wasn't going out into the world in the form of a book, I would still be writing because it is my favourite, you know, other than I've got a family now and pets and hobbies, you know. Oh, yeah. But, but still, it, given on a great day, I tell a story and, and that's, that's always been the case. So I didn't really think of it as those 10,000 hours, but in hindsight, well, I did everything wrong in terms of like how I did that first submission and I hadn't done <laughs> enough research and the fact that they picked it up was a miracle, but also those million, that million words that I had written certainly had an impact on the quality probably of the manuscript I submitted. Sure. And, and was it a miracle that, that they picked it up, you know, and, and, and ran with it or, you know, was that just what would happen if you would have submitted to anyone? I mean, I mean, who knows at this point, that's, yeah, that's a that's fun a little point. exercise to think about. It is. It is. Yeah, that's true. I had actually written that novel in 10 years earlier. I had written the first, that was one of the ones that I kept. It felt special when I write it, when I wrote it and I kept it in my hotmail inbox. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, <laughs> so I had written it such a long time before and I'd spent, so over the years I'd, you know, come back to it and do a bit of editing or revising or this idea or that idea. Um, so I don't know. I wonder what would have happened, but there's no way to know. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPins is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process. The concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 
12 beats and 3 acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000 word book, it's about two cards per chapter roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website. Developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates, PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Well, I, I would like to tack one thing on to the, the previous question, and that would be on, on your website, you've got a note from Kelly, um, which is which is fantastic. But the, the last bit of that, you said, I wish I could go back in time to tell that kindergarten version of myself that one day – all of her storytelling dreams would come true. Um, do, if you could go back and tell, you know, yourself that, you know, hey, it's I promise it's going to work out. Um, would you have believed that? You, you know, or it, it's it's that. And that, again, it's one of those questions that that you can't honestly answer. But um, you know, would it have made a difference to to tell your younger self that you know it's it's all going to be okay. It's going to work out. I think, you know, there were tough times in those years and I think it would have been every now and again, I wake up and I just kind of pinch myself at, that I get to do this for a job, that I had a book come out and it, it was on a New York Times list last week. Like I just, this is so surreal to me that, that these stories have resonated the way they have. And I think, um, I, I think if I had, if there'd been a way to go back and tell that kid that these things, amazing things were going to happen. First of all, I don't think she would have believed it. But I do think 
I think it was the hope that some of this would happen that got me through some really tough times. So it would be really, it would. I really do wish I could go back and just give myself a big hug and say, look, <laughs> keep telling those stories. It's all going to be great. <laughs> oh, don't we all wish that? Don't yeah. we all wish that? Yeah. Um, what was that first book that was published? Um, because you said this was a story that you had been hanging on to for 10 years and mm. you obviously had written other things after that. Um, and, and and let me qualify that question with um, I, I find it really interesting that people that have 20, 30 books in their back catalog um, and, and maybe are on a, a book a year schedule um, feel very differently about their book than than new writers. Uh, you know, when you write that first novel, you almost feel like this is this is the most precious thing in the world. And I'm mm. so dearly connected to this work. Um, you know, I can. It, it would be very difficult to move on past this book because because you're so connected to it and so invested in it. Um, what what was it about that book that that felt so special to you that that you kept going back to? Um, I think it was. That's a really good question. Again, you're really you've asked very good interview questions. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I think it was because I I had I actually had the idea for the first scene in that book, which takes place at a ferry wharf on Sydney Harbour. And I'd had, I was working in Sydney and I'd had a really tough day at my, I was working in IT and, you know, quite a pressured job. And I was sitting at the ferry wharf and I saw this interaction take place in front of me, this really unique interaction. And it just sparked. It was probably my first experience of, of really having a story just appear out of nowhere, you know, just this one little trigger and my imagination's off on this wild journey. Um, and I I didn't actually know what genre I wanted to write at that point. I was writing speculative fiction and I was writing little bits and pieces of other things. Um, the, probably the only genre I was definitely not going to write was crime because I'm a bit of a chicken and I get spooked pretty easily. So I, I, I was really kind of still experimenting with my voice as well. But that story, that scene just was so vivid to me that I kept coming back to it over the years and that story took on a really different tone over time as well um I read Jodie Picou's My Sister's Keeper when I was or probably probably a year or two after that and I loved the way that she took this incredibly complicated moral dilemma and wrote about it in this light conversational tone and I thought to myself that's what I need to do. That's what I want to do. That's the, that narrowed my kind of path in terms of how I wanted to write. And so I kept, I came back to that scene on the ferry wharf again and, you know, then, then changed the way that I was writing to try and write about, make it more morally complex and da da da, all that kind of stuff. So it just, I think it felt, it wasn't the first novel I'd written, no. And I don't, I don't know, there was just something about it that felt special. Um, I do think that when you are when you're aspiring to be published, you have to be willing to throw away your first novel and maybe your second because sometimes sometimes you need a few goes at it to find the groove and to find the voice. And that's absolutely heartbreaking to people, but um it's just the way it is. Right. And and I think that that's a that's a very hard lesson for a lot of new writers to oh, learn. So um, tricky. 
because you're you're so invested. This is you pouring out your soul, and um, yeah. But anyway, you you went on to publish several uh, romance novels and uh, what we might uh, refer to as women's fiction. Um, yes. And the the last few books that you have uh, published have been historical fiction, especially yes. based around uh, this World War II time frame. Um, what was it that initially drew you to uh, to this genre and these types of stories? Well, it was actually my my mother's family history that first sparked my interest in in particularly World War II Poland because they were they were Catholic, Polish Catholics. They were displaced by the war and came to Australia. Obviously, from my accent, people probably have already figured that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, I had written an earlier historical novel. My second novel was set in Australia in the 70s um, around there was a, a forced adoption policy in many government institutions. And so that novel is about the, the implications of that. But I, I didn't think of myself as a historical novelist. I just was thinking about even before I was published, actually. So it would be 12 years ago now, I was at my family's Christmas function which uh, is, is summer here at Christmas time. And we hold this party every year, kind of here. It's kind of our, um, our nod to our Polish heritage. We all get together and we eat Polish food. And we, my aunt often will have a distant relative post us communion wafers from Poland. Um, and we just have a Christmas party. And I was at that Christmas party one year and I looked around and thought, oh my goodness, there's a lot of us. <laughs> it was more than 50 direct descendants from my grandparents so from this this Polish Catholic couple more than 50 people and I thought we're so diverse so we have so little in common um, other than the fact that we're all Australian and I wondered how that happened how on earth did we end up here well you know we could have we could have just as easily wound up anywhere after you know my grandparents could have wound up anywhere after the war and because they landed in Australia and kind of pressed on with their their futures and didn't like to look back and certainly didn't like to talk about what they'd been through. Um, we, we just didn't know. We didn't know how we ended up here. So I, over the years, I started reading World War II kind of, you know, reference books and texts, trying to get an idea of what life might have been like for them there in rural Poland. Um, and out of that research emerged these characters who just would not let me go. And so over for probably 10 years, that story was simmering away in my mind. And I'd go to pitch it to my editor. And then at the last minute, I'd think, oh, it's it's too hard. I don't know that I can do the story justice. And I was very nervous about writing about World War II because it is an immense responsibility to represent it accurately. Um, and then one day it just felt like time. I knew I could go to Poland and I knew I was at a point in my career where I could justify a trip to Poland and where people would, you know, be able to access the research that I needed to. And so, so that was, that was the story. And it was quite a remarkable, researching that book was a remarkable experience because I've learned so much about my grandparents' lives. While I was in Poland, I did some direct research into them and found a cousin and, and met with a cousin. Um, and she actually took me to my grandmother's childhood home, which eerily was exactly what I was picturing for the the family home in my novel. Um, and I, you know, she might have she might have described it to me when I was a child. I don't know, but just somehow I'm picturing exactly the right house and exactly the right spot. And um, it just was just was incredible. So yeah, that's that's how that came to be. 
So, Kelly, when you're tackling uh, a book like The Warsaw Orphan, um, as opposed to the the other types of fiction that you uh, love to write, uh, what is the the creative process like? I mean, and and let me let me ask specifically. Um, I love to to hear about how stories are born, um, like that that first moment where where a story comes into being, and uh, in in the beginning, like um, before you begin the work on a novel, it doesn't exist in any form whatsoever. Uh, but then as writers do, you start playing the what if game. It may be a, a novel that you read, a movie you saw, a song that you heard, a, a news article you read begins to to kick your imagination off and and you start playing what if games and then you you know set the stage in your mind with characters that come out of nowhere and and then all of a sudden they inhabit the story and you know and then in in some form or fashion the the story exists and then you as the writer then begin to excavate that and then bring the story out of out of that um is the Obviously, the process is different if you're writing an historical fiction novel versus a, a romance novel or, uh, you know, some uh, family life drama. Um, but how how different is the process other than the gathering historical facts that you might need to, you know, build plot points around and, uh, you know, turning points in the story and that sort of thing? Um, but is is the creative process that different other than the research aspects? It, yeah, it is in the sense that the research directs where the story goes in a way that's a little unique. So I I try to, I'm writing fiction in a world where, you know, the, against the backdrop of historic events. And I try to get that as accurate as I can. So if I, I plot, I'm someone who will have a quite an extensive outline and I write from that. But if I find, in fact, this happened on the novel that I'm writing now, if I start doing the research and realise that, you know, I start with such a scant understanding of the era that I'm writing in. And so if I find that what I thought, you know, as I start to do the deep research, if I find that what I thought was the case wasn't, then I change the story so that it is going to be as accurate as I can get it. Of course, there's times when you can't do that and you have to make little little niggles of every now and again I've had to move something in the story because the time the the true historic timeline hasn't quite worked out but for the most part I try and stick to it and so that that can change the plot significantly um but other than that I mean the case of the Warsaw Orphan I I actually probably plotted out a big chunk of this for the things we cannot say my earlier historical World War II novel um, and I had to, she, the main character in The Warsaw Orphan, Amelia, she has a, a minor role in The Things We Cannot Say, but I originally wanted her to have a larger role and go ahead and do some of the things that she does in The Warsaw Orphan, but I had to kind of, it was too big. The story was already so immense that I just couldn't fit it in. And so I kind of chopped that subplot out and then forgot about it for years. And, you know, two whole years, I didn't give it another thought. And then I was at a book club and someone was talking about her grandmother was smuggled out of a ghetto in Hungary in a suitcase. And yeah. And that just sparked this memory of this subplot I had because Amelia, my main character in the Warsaw orphan gets involved in a scheme to rescue children from the Warsaw ghetto. And 
I, that wasn't the muse kind of, you know, was going, okay, let's go, let's go. And I'm at the book club trying to focus on the questions and I'm thinking, oh, I could, I could dig back into that world and people keep asking me to write a sequel and I can't because this story was self-contained. And then at the end of that book club, that same woman, she, she gave me this quite like intense stare and she said, could you write a sequel? And I said, no, I can't because it's all self-contained. And she said, well, can't you just write Amelia's story? And I could because that was the subplot. So I actually looked up the dates. I did a library talk here in my hometown a few weeks ago. So I looked up the, got the photos of the book club out so I could show people on the screen. And I looked up the dates. And this is how quick the process was. That book club was the 1st of June. And I submitted my proposal on the 18th of June. So in that two and a bit weeks, all I did was you know, frantically research and frantically plan this outline. And what is in the book is basically there's a few little things that I had to tweak or move because, again, because of the research, but the book is basically that outline. Wow. Um, Kelly, there, there's been an interesting um, thing that's happened in the world of publishing over the last several years um, that this this time period um, is – is fertile ground right now for for all sorts of um, historical novels uh, that people are, are uncovering all sorts of little nooks and crannies of of this you know worldwide event and this time period and telling stories about it. Um, why do you think, as a as you know a novelist who's working in this time period, why do you think that our interest is so peaked right now about uh, the, specifically the time uh, around World War II and the the way that this you know massive event affected people on a personal level? Why do you think it is that we, as the reading public, are, are so hungry and you know almost have an insatiable desire for these stories right now? Yeah, I think there's two things. I think we are coming to um, a period where the people who lived these stories are, you know, reaching the end of their lives. And I think right. we, we as a society become aware that we are losing something and losing them, that if we don't hear the stories of what happened, uh, you know, of course, history history is not static. Like, you know, it, it's happened, but it can happen again. And World War II was such a catastrophic disaster that we as a as a species so desperately need to keep learning the lessons from it and so I think that's one factor and I think the other factor is the world is a pretty chaotic place at the moment and we we I think we go searching for an escape to a different world when things you know as readers when things are when things are really rough and uh, World War II is an interesting era to escape into because it's not it's not particularly pleasant it's not it's not like a lighthearted romance or a crime novel where you know exactly what's going to happen. Kind of the genre is, is has rigid kind of conventions. It's not like that, but it gives us a perspective, and I think it brings us a, a gratitude that you know, as rough as things are and as tough as things are, we we still are in a better place than we might have been, and um and and we can learn the lessons and we can do better. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. What would you say, uh, Kelly, to someone who's not familiar with your work and who's um, thinking about picking up um, the Warsaw Orphan? And um, what would you tell them about this book? What's your elevator pitch for this book? 
Oh, okay. It is the story of two teenagers. El, uh, Amelia is living in Warsaw. She lives quite a an insular life. She's living with her adoptive parents in an apartment block, just a few blocks from the Warsaw ghetto. But she's but she they're nervous for her because she has a potential. She's potentially in danger because of the actions of some of her family, and so she lives under an assumed name. She's living as Elspieta. Um, and being nearly 14, she's just a little rebellious. She's, she is frustrated that her life has become so small and she rebels in really subtle ways. Um, and through that rebellion, she meets a neighbour, Sarah, who is involved in a scheme to rescue children from the Warsaw Ghetto. And Amelia, being quite a headstrong young woman, she, um, she finds a way to be involved in that herself. And through that work, she meets Raman Gorka. And Raman and his family are trapped in the ghetto. They have a, he has a little baby sister. She's six weeks old. And, you know, the conditions in the ghetto are such that his sister is really not doing very well. Um, and that, that meeting between Raman and Amelia changes both of their lives. Um, and we follow them through the, the use of the ghetto and the ghetto uprising. And then later on, the Warsaw uprising. And in the early years of the communist occupation. This is a story that I'm I'm recommending to everyone. Um, this uh, uh, my wife and I both read it and we loved the book so much. Um, oh, th- thank this you. Is, Absolutely. Um, the Warsaw Orphan is available everywhere now. Uh, when you're hearing this, you can grab it in Kindle edition. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. Um, also in hardcover, uh, this is a, a great book to have on your shelf and to uh, to loan out to uh, to other family members and, and friends that that need to read it. Um, also in uh, an audiobook, um, have you have you had a chance to listen to the finished audiobook yet? Do you know, I did. Um, it, it's, it seems a little narcissistic to listen to my own audiobooks, <laughs> but I always do it. And um, You should. One, yeah, and it, it's a different experience. And I always think that the narrators or the voice actors have nailed it when I, the person who has read this thing probably 50 times, when I am at the edge of my seat and, and because they bring it to life in such a vivid way, I almost, at times I find myself going, oh, what's going to happen next? I mean, I know what happens next, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it, the audio of this book is extraordinary. I just, the, these narrators just were incredible. So, um, yes, I have listened to it um, and I do, I do think it's a fantastic format. I mean, I love audiobooks in general, but I think that these voice actors just did a great job. Well, if you would like to listen to the audiobook as well, there's a link in the show notes of this episode. Just click over, pick it up on uh, on Audible, and listen to it throughout your day. We're going to put links to, to all the places you can get it in the show notes of this episode. Kelly, if people are just discovering you and want to get into all of the amazing stuff that you're involved in and doing, where can they find you online? They can find my website at kellyrimmer.com and there's links to all of the social networks and all of that kind of thing through there. So that's kellyrimmer.com. Excellent. We'll link that up as well. Kelly, this has been so much fun chatting. We're going to send everyone to pick up a copy of The Warsaw Orphan, a World War II novel. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Oh, it's been a pleasure to chat with you, Hank. Thanks so much. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. 
Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.